0: we've started doing prayer even now we're out of batteries on this one just in case case. okay i'll put those in my pocket as a just in case um as we're gonna get ready to study through this chapter i want to go ahead and pray um uh, again for another church in our community Um, i had a, a really cool opportunity to meet with a couple this last week 've they've, uh, they've come on our hospice services, and they 've been lifelong members pretty much of the first United Methodist Church here in town, the one on Main Street and um, uh, the other big beautiful building there on Main Street Church building. The pastor there is Pastor Eric, I know him, um, but they shared a cool story with me. as you guys know, like some of the, the the mainstream denominational churches like the Methodist Church as well as like the Presbyterian Church, on the national level, they have begun to make some really unbiblical and ungodly compromises within the church. And um, even in this region over the First United Methodist Church, they've appointed a female uh, bishop who is um, homosexual. And um, that's in this area. And um, Pastor Eric had a meeting with her, they told me, about uh, four or five months ago, and and made a stand. He said, basically, as for me and My church, as as we as our church in Canyon City, we're serving the Lord. We're not going to be a part of of that, um, as they were telling the churches that they're now going to have to start participating in um, homosexual marriages. And he, uh, thank God for him, and other godly men in our community said that he would not do that. As long as he's a pastor of that church, that will not happen. And so I give thanks for Pastor Eric. I know that he loves all people, including those who are involved in that kind of relationship, but he's still willing to stand on the truth of God's word and and to not compromise and and even um, be willing to stand against those who are over him, so to speak, who are wrong, to stand up for what is right. So I want to pray for Pastor Eric this morning and for the Methodist Church as we just remember uh, other brothers and sisters, and other churches in our community. So if you guys will bow your head and um, pray with me. Father, we want to lift up the First United Methodist Church, and we give you thanks for our, our brothers and sisters um, in you who who worship there and who are worshiping there this morning. Lord, I know that the church has struggled lately with um, the changes that are taking place on the, on the um, more national level with that organization, and God, we pray against all ungodliness and unbiblical things that are coming into that church that have been um, that church, that Methodist church that has been so rooted and, and so grounded, Lord, from its conception on biblical truth. And as Pastor Eric, Lord, makes these stands for you and as that congregation stands against um, sin and unrighteousness, we pray, God, that they would do it, first of all, with a spirit of, of love and a spirit of compassion but also, Lord, that they would not um, compromise the truth and that you would bless them for that, Lord, that um, their light would shine before them, your light that's in them would shine before them into this lost and dark world. As a beacon of hope, Lord, and as a a light to the rest of us, God, of, of how to follow after you with all our heart, with our soul, and with all of our mind. And so, Lord, as they gather together to worship you and study your word together there at the First United Methodist Church, we pray, God, for your presence to be with them. We pray, God, that they would um, know you more, and uh, we give you thanks for them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Um, Exodus chapter 34 is where we're at, and last week as we studied through chapter 33, if you remember, the overall theme if you will, of that chapter was about restoration. It was specifically um, the, that we saw this path of restoration that the children of Israel were led down as they um, were brought back into the presence of God. And in this process of restoration, we read how Moses, like Jesus does for us, which is awesome, um, like Moses, um, that Moses, like Jesus does for us. Um, Moses advocated as a mediator for a people, the people, and he did so specifically in last week's chapter as we studied through it by appealing to the grace of God. Over and over, God, you're a gracious God. You've shown us your grace in the past, and will you please show us your grace in the future? And that was the, the basis for um, Moses' um, intercession um, as he came before um, God um, with that desire to, for God to, to bring his presence back into the camp and to lead them. And because Moses had interceded for God's people, we know that they were restored back ultimately to the place that they had fallen from. And, and God said that and that he would continue to lead them into the promised land. But before the Hebrew people would leave Mount Sinai, as God had instructed them now to do, we see in this chapter that God would renew or reestablish his covenant with them. And that's the main focus of this next chapter, this this renewal of the covenant. But before we read on, I want to point out that that last week as we studied through that chapter, it was the second time now that Moses had gone before God to successfully intercede for the Hebrew people. To successfully, and and really the key word there is, is selflessly intercede for the Hebrew people. And after God had granted Moses' request to first forgive the Hebrew people for the sin that they had committed and then to to come back and personally lead them with his presence um, from Mount Sinai to the Promised Land, Moses, in the final verses of chapter 33, if you remember, we talked about it, he asked God to do something for him. Over and over again, it was do something for the people. Forgive the people. Bring your presence back together for the people. Even before that, Moses went on the mountain to establish this covenant with the people. The people were afraid, and Moses came up to to represent them and and did so each time selflessly. But now Moses asked for God to do something for him, and it's the first time we really ever see this happening through this whole entire count. And he said in verse 18 simply this, please. Show me your glory. And God, who had previously told Moses, and I I like this, and I want to bring it back out because it's it's a cool thing to take notice because God had previously told Moses as he was speaking to him through this intercession process, God is basically saying, I'll listen to you, Moses, and I'll do what you you ask because I'm gracious, but because of you also. He says to him, he says, I know your name. That's, That's a personal thing right? When someone knows your name, when someone remembers your name, that's a pretty cool feeling. God said to Moses, I know your name. Not only that, he said to him, he said, you found grace in my sight. And because of that, God granted Moses his request to see his glory, to have God reveal his glory, to show him his glory. And in doing so, God told Moses this, He told him, first of all, that he would only be able to see his glory as he passed by. Remember, God said, I'm going to put you on the rock. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to walk by, and you're going to only see the backside of me, a glimpse, a glimpse And he said he would pass by him, and in doing so, God said this, that he would make all of his goodness pass before Moses. Even in that limited ability that Moses was given to see the glory of God, ultimately God said that in that moment, in that time, he said, I will make all of my goodness pass before you. All my, past, all my goodness would pass before Moses, is what God said. And, and, and in addition to that, he said this other thing. He said that he would, he would proclaim the name of the Lord before him. So he was going to show him something, and he was going to tell him something, right? You're going to see, and you're going to hear. I'm going to reveal, and I'm going to proclaim, And he would proclaim the name of the Lord before him. In light of this, we ended our study last week talking about how God's glory lies in his goodness. How God's glory lies in his goodness. And how really, as a result of that, every other attribute of God that we can think of, including his justice, his power, and even his wrath, is ultimately a manifestation and extension of God's goodness. So when God allowed for Moses to see his glory as he passed by, Moses came to understand this one foundational truth, that God is entirely and completely good. Now, in promising to proclaim the name of the Lord before Moses as he passed by, God was also making his nature, or really more specific, the attributes of his character known to Moses, okay? That was the proclamation part of the name. He was making his attributes of his character known to Moses. And this was, this was also so important because at the root of Moses' request, and we really sang about this this morning multiple different times, and I love that I was sitting there thinking about last week's study, thinking about this study and worshiping the Lord in relationship to where we're at, because as at the root of Moses' request to see the glory of his God was this desire to know God better, to know him more. And even though Moses had been this, this firsthand witness, now I, for me, I don't know about you, but I like to take the whole context, the whole account that we've been re- reading through and put it in light of where we're at and what Moses is asking because Moses at this point might be what we would say, well, he's a mature believer. He's been walking with the Lord for a while and he's seen some things and he's done some things and, and experienced some really cool stuff. But, but even, even though Moses, guys, remember, he had been a first-hand witness to the manifested power of God in delivering Israel out of the land of Egypt. He had been a first-hand witness to that. All the way from the very beginning when Moses was in the the wilderness with his sheep, when God called him with the burning bush that was not consumed. That's when this whole thing started. That was a long time ago, right? And God called him and he sent him and he did miraculous and wondrous things through Moses for the people over and over and over and over again. And we've read, and when we studied and read through that, we saw that the whole purpose of all of those things was so that God would be known. God was making himself known to Pharaoh first, he said, to the Egyptian people, but also to his people who had been in bondage for 400 years. Making himself known. And Moses was the conduit for that. And even greater than those things, which is mind-blowing to me, is that, 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 that in addition to being the first-hand witness to those things, Moses was also, he had just been on the mountain, Mount Sinai, for 40 days and 40 nights in God's presence where he had spoken, where God said that he had spoken to Moses like a man speaks to his friend. And and even though Moses had experienced this kind of contact with God, witnessed these kinds of miraculous and wonderful things which were... um, demonstrations of God's power, of God's love, everything of God that we know, Moses sensed that there was still so much more to know about God. And he wanted more in his personal relationship with God. He's going, there's more here. I want to know you more. Show me your glory. So as we read in this next chapter... We see God graciously calling Moses to come back up Mount Sinai in honor to honor Moses' request. And, like I already stated, to reestablish his covenant with the children of Israel. So, with that, if you guys will look at chapter 34, verse 1, we'll read and see what it says here. And it says in verse 1, And the Lord said to Moses, Cut two tablets of stone, like the first ones. And I will write on these tablets the words which were on the first tablets which you broke. So be ready in the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. And no man, again, this warning, which is similar to the warning that was given the first time Moses came up, he said, and no man shall come up with you, and let no man be seen throughout all the mountain. Let neither flocks nor herds feed before the mountains. And last time Moses did this, they even set guards around the mountain uh, to, to to keep people away. For, for it was a holy place that God was, God was meeting with his people there as he was um, meeting with Moses, and again that was taking place. So in verse four it says, "So Moses he cut the two tablets of stones like the first one." Then Moses rose early in the morning and and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. So t- real quick, <laughs> this is a pretty cool thing. I love that in verse four. One of the one of the Psalms and one of the Psalms David talks about seeking the Lord early in the morning. You know, and the, it's it's with this this. Great desire. Who here drinks coffee? I mean, we're like the coffee church, right? Who here is not any good without their coffee in the morning? You know, it's like, it's one of the first things that I look forward to is is my coffee. I seek my coffee early in the morning. And when David writes about seeking the Lord early in the morning, it's with that kind of a thought idea, greater than that, actually, where you just have this hunger and this, like, I need this. And don't anybody talk to me until I get this, okay? Or else. And and um, I I, I thinking about this passage of scripture where it says that Moses rose early in the morning. Now, if God, after everything that, that they had gone through, and now God said, "Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna show you my glory, Moses. I'm gonna reveal more of myself." To you, And after Moses had already gone and seen all these other awesome things and had already been on the mountain with God, where God had spoke to him like a man speaks to a friend, and God said basically to Moses, you ain't seen nothing yet, Moses. Would you not want to rise early in the morning the next day too? I mean, you you probably wouldn't even have to set your alarm, right? It's like when I go hunting, I feel that way, or I got a hunting trip or a fishing trip. I know I'm not going to sleep that night. You know, I'm thinking about where I'm going to go, and I know that I might want to sleep, but I'm like, I'm like up at 3 o'clock, and I don't even have to be up till 5, and I'm just waiting there in bed, anticipating that, that expectation of what is lying ahead in the day. Guys, you and I have that every single day with our Lord. We have this, what Moses was seeking, we have this available to us every single day. To be able to rise in the morning and meet and have communion and fellowship with God where he's going to say, you have not seen nothing yet. Look what I want to show you of myself and do for you today. And with that kind of knowledge should bring forth this passion to also go, we're going to rise early in the morning and meet with the Lord. And so Moses, he said, he went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. Now the Lord descended in the cloud, and he stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and by no means clearing the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and to the fourth generation. So Moses, verse 8, made haste and bowed his head towards the earth and worshiped. And I think that was the right response. I think any one of us would and should do that when the Lord meets with us, is to bow our hearts, to bow down, and to worship him when God makes himself known, when God proclaims himself to us. And he does so in many ways, guys. It happens all the time when we seek him. It says in verse 9, then, then he said, the Lord God said, um, it, it, or Moses said, excuse me, if, if, if now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. And verse 10, he said, Behold, I make a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as has not been done in all the earth, nor any other nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Marvelous and awesome things. Therefore, in verse 11, observe what I command you this day. Behold, I am driving out from before you the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Take heed, verse 12, for yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. Where are you going? Where you are going, lest it be a snare in your midst. So a warning, but you shall destroy their altars, break down their sacred pillars and cut down their wooden images for you shall worship no other God for the Lord God whose name is jealous is a jealous God. Verse 15, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods, and make sacrifices to their gods, and one of them invites you, and you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of his daughters for your sons, and your daughters play the harlot with their gods, and make your sons play the harlots with their gods. You shall make no molden gods for yourself. I think God got really specific there, don't you? Yeah. Um, therefore, in verse verse 18, it says, The feast of unleavened bread you shall keep. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, as I commanded you in the appointed time of the month of Abib. For in that month of, of Abib you came out from Egypt. All that opened the womb are mine, and every male firstborn among your livestock, whether ox or sheep. But the firstborn of the donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, and if you will not redeem him, then you shall break his neck. At the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. And so that redemption was really an in, in, in offering up a sacrifice to the Lord uh, in, in place for that firstborn son of yours. So in verse 20 and one, it says six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. So the Sabbath is, is spoken of again here as well as Sabbath day rest. And in plowing time and in harvest, you shall rest. And so we don't have the specifics of that here, but it was also talking about the, the sabbatical year of rest as well. And, and, and then in verse 22, you shall observe the feast of weeks and the, fea- and the first fruits of the weast harvest and the feast of gathering at the year's end. Three times in the year, all your men shall appear before the Lord God of Israel, for I will cast out the nations before you and enlarge your borders. Neither will any man covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord God three times in this year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifices with leaven, which is yeast, nor shall the sacrifice of the feast of Passover be left until morning. The first fruits, the first of the fruits of your land you shall bring to the Lord, to the house of the Lord, your God, and you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And even to this day you cannot get a cheeseburger in Israel, because of that statement there. It's true. (laughs) Then the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for according to the tenor of the words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So, verse 28. He was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights, once again, and he neither neither ate bread nor drank, and, and, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenants of the Ten Commandments. Literally, they're the ten words. And Father, as we now study through this next chapter, I ask God that your Spirit would teach us, that you would... Soften our hearts, Lord, to receive what you have for us this morning. God, that we would see that you're the greatest thing that we can, that we can possess, that relationship with you, um, knowing you more and more. So we desire, like Moses, Lord, today we say, show us your glory, uh, make your goodness known to us, proclaim your name, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so as we go back to the beginning of this chapter and go through these verses, we, we now see that in calling Moses back up the mountain that God instructed him first in verse 1, right? To cut the two tablets of stones like the first ones. And, and, and God kind of puts in there and says, like the ones you broke, <laughs> and and I, I don't know if there's anything going on there. I really think that 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 Moses breaking the the, the first two tablets had um a, a righteous uh and uh significance to the anger that Moses had at that time. But Moses had broken those tablets at the foot of the mountain, if you remember, when he had seen the people or when he saw the people sinning with the golden calf, when they were dancing all around it in their sensual and 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 even sexual ways. And and um and when Moses broke the first two tablets, it was a uh, was a sign to them of the greatness of their sin because and and, and we talked about that <laughs> Moses had said to him multiple times back in chapter thirty two that your sin is great, your sin is great and um it was a sign of 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 the the greatness of their sin because in, in, the, in the smashing or the breaking of the two tablets because what God had written on them, like what we read here also, um, were the things that they had agreed to obey to enter into this contract, which they were then so quick to forsake when they had Aaron fashion this, this or this take the gold and mold it into this calf, a God which they could see and worship. So when Moses... Cast them on the ground, and when he broke them, it demonstrated how the people had broken their covenant. You know, it would be like taking a contractual agreement, and someone had broken, tearing it up, right? It's the same kind of thing. And they had broken that covenant with their idolatry and their morality when they were worshiping the calf, and literally the sin that they committed then canceled out the deal that they had made with God, making it null and void. Now think about that. If, if you have had an agreement with God in this situation and your relationship was a conditional relationship and thank God that our, 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 the, that we are saved by grace through faith, the new covenant is rooted in the blood of Jesus and it's the grace of God that now sustains us because it's it, 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 so much, let me put it this way, there was, and let me, there, was, and there was, they lost their assurance in that moment from their point of view and then we're gonna talk about that. From God's point of view, is a different perspective. But, but um, they had no deal. And so without a covenant, without a deal, the people had no way of knowing where they stood with God. Right? They had no way of knowing where they stood with God, even though God at this point said he had relented from the harm that he, was, he said he was going to do to them. And even though he had right now at this time had promised that his presence would go with them, they still did not know where they stood with him. You see, they might have been wondering, and, I, and, and if this is all we knew, we too should be wondering, in what capacity was God now going to accompany them to the promised land? What capacity? Would it be like a policeman who watches a criminal? You know, somebody was in the hospital not too long ago, and I was in there with him, and across the hallway was one of the prisoners in the in the um, room next to him. And you know he was standing outside? A guard. You know, that was the relationship that he was watching this guy to make sure he didn't break out or do anything wrong. And sometimes I think we think that's what our God's like. He's just following us around like a policeman to see if he can catch us doing something wrong. That's not true. We don't have that standing with our God. But the children of Israel, where they were at, they could, have, they could have very well come to the conclusion that God's now going to be going with us to make sure that, that we're not doing any criminal acts. Or was he going to be traveling with them now, his presence among them, like a father who cares for his children? Because that was the, the essence of the contract to begin with. You'll be my people, and I'll be your God. I'll be your father, you'll be my children. So where was it at? What kind of relationship were they now having with this God that had brought them out of the, 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 the land of Egypt? And, and really, guys, the answer came in this chapter. It came in this chapter when God instructed Moses to cut two new stone tablets to cut the new stone tablets. And, and I'm sure if, if you had this understanding as a, as a children of, of Israel, as a Hebrew person, and you're standing in your tent, and Moses is getting ready to go back up, and, and you've been through all of this right now, and he cuts the two new stone tablets with which the covenant was written on previously, and he's going back up, you might go, it's gonna be all right. It's gonna be all right. God's given us a second chance. Because the two stone tablets meant that God was going to replace the tablets that Moses had broke and renew the covenant with the, that the people had violated with their sin. And so Moses, it says, he cut the two stone tablets like the first ones. He rose early the next morning with the tablets in his hand, and he went back up the mountain like God had commanded. But before God did anything we see here with the two tablets, he then he first revealed himself to Moses as he had promised in verses 5 through 7 here in this chapter. And in verses 5-7, through it says that he passed before Moses to see all of his goodness, which we've talked about, and he spoke for Moses to hear. He passed by for Moses to see all of his goodness, and he spoke for Moses to hear the name of the Lord proclaimed. And I think it's important for us to realize that God did so much here than simply lecture Moses on his nature when he spoke. My dad, I love my dad. He's passed away, but he was the king of lecture. You know, I would be like, could you just spank me now? Get it done. <laughs> but I say that because I have genetically inherited that with my own, for my own kids. And, and, and I remember how I felt at that time, so I, I'm really trying to be sensitive to that. And man, I could lecture like the best of them. You ask my kids, they'll tell you. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. <laughs> but that's not what God was doing here, guys. God wasn't simply lecturing Moses on his nature when he spoke. I can't, there's no way to overstate the awesomeness of what was taking place in this moment. No way. Huh. And when God spoke, we're told that the name that he proclaimed, he said it twice was the Lord, the Lord God. You want to know what that is? Translated back, I'm going to go a little further, with it. back to the time when Moses first met God at the burning bush. He said, what? I am. I am that I am. The Lord, the Lord. It is the Hebrew word Yahweh. It's such a precious and holy name to the Hebrew people and we don't even know the, the, the actual spelling of it. It's just an abbreviation for us. Yahweh. And God had used the same name before he even had contact with Moses for himself when he previously revealed himself to Abraham and Isaac. And in doing so, God presented himself then, and he was presenting himself now with that name, with that holy name, as the internal and immutable God, considering that the holy name of Yahweh is ultimately an expression of all that God is and all that God does. I am. Yahweh. And the cool thing about it is, it's also the covenantal name that God gave to his people in setting forth these promises. Why did God make these promises? I am. Ultimately, that's the reason why. Therefore, in speaking this name to Moses, God was revealing his character. And at this moment, Moses was experiencing his character; he was experiencing it, literally coming to know the character of God in a dramatic way. Now, I found this this statement written by Charles Spurgeon. He said this. He wrote and said, "He said knowing God, knowing God should be the active interest of every human being." Just that word; those words alone are, are powerful. The active interest. What are you actively interested about? I I, th- I think we're 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 kind of like the squirrel, you know, that's chasing nut. It's like, oh, oh, you know, we're we're only actively interested about one thing for a short time because our interest our interests weigh, they 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 waver, right? We're fickle. And and in the society that we live on, you turn on the TV, you look at your phone, and there's like a hundred different things all in the The moment of 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 a a, a, the the bleep of a moment to 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 take your interest from one thing to the next, and so we're really actively interested in in probably way too many things at any given time. But Charles Spurgeon says knowing God should be the active interest of every human being, and especially of every Christian. Right? He says this. It says it's been said by someone that the proper study of mankind is man. He says, I will not p- oppose that idea, but I believe it is equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead, the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God Is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doing, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his father. Knowing God, experiencing God, that's what it's all about. And for Moses, that's what he desired. Now, the proclamation which Moses, excuse me, which God spoke to Moses. Here when God proclaimed his name, it, it really what you see, if you count it out and kind of break it down, what you see is, is that it's revealed seven positive attributes. And seven always in scripture is this this number of completion. Is, is God have more holy attributes, more awesome attributes than this? Absolutely. So so the number itself is is not significant in that this is all this contains everything and holy what God is and who God is. There's just seven here for us, seven positive attributes of God. And I think the number seven is significant for just a, a completeness, um, a, a number of perfection. And, and, but all of these things, when you really look at it, all of the attributes point to God's compassion and God's forgiveness. All of them. And the first two, let's let's break them down a little bit. The first two attributes that God proclaims about Himself here in these verses is that He is merciful and gracious. These these words are all these words in the, are in the adjective form, and and um, they're descriptive. And the 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 word merciful is the Hebrew word rakum, which means this merciful. That word rakum it actually translates to this. Word more than it does the word merciful, the word rakum translates to the the, the the word or the phrase full of compassion, full of compassion and 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 the the best way for me to 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 illustrate or to expound on this is to read you a passage of scripture from psalm seventy eight and psalm seventy eight is really a, a a historical account of The children of what God did for the children of Israel in the wilderness. And in verse 38, it says this But he, God, being Rachum, being full of compassion, merciful, right? Being full of compassion, he, God, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity and he did not destroy them. Yes, he says, many a time he turned his anger away and did not stir up all. His wrath. And so this is compassion in action. And that's who God is. Merciful, full of compassion. Compassion in action, turning away. Turning his anger away and 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 not stirring up all of his wrath. Now, the word gracious, we've if you've been here and 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 have sat under the, the teaching that we go through you know that there's multiple different descriptions or definitions for the word gracious. And, and we've gone through them and we spoke of them and it's such a, a complex word. It's complex. The word gracious is complex. And the Hebrew word that is used here is also an adjective is the word kanun. And, and this word, it really, at it, it, the basis of it, it I, I love this because out of this flows so many more Definitions of the word "gracious," but it is literally the action of stooping down in kindness to an inferior in order to show or bestow favor to the undeserving. Kanun, our Lord is gracious, and even though there are there are, there is so many more um, accurate and descriptive ways of illustrating. That word gracious, that encompasses this one word. F.B. Meyer, another great um, biblical scholar, he compacts it all for us, I think, when he says this one statement about this kanun, attribute of our God. He said, there is no greater word in the language that stands for the undeserved free gift of the love of God. The undeserved free gift of the love of God. God is gracious. And so in addition to being merciful and gracious, God also tells us that he's long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. Now, there's a, there's, a, there's a verb there, a word there, abounding to illustrate what God's like, abounding in goodness and truth. And the word, first of all, long-suffering, simply means this, that God is slow to anger. Man, I, I'm so grateful for that. Slow to anger. In other words, God doesn't have a short fuse. He's patient with us. And I'm grateful for this because I think we all know what it's like to deal with with, with people who have a short fuse. Someone who is offended or even outraged at just the slightest little offense. And by the way, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and one of the attributes of, of, of love that's written out there, It loosely translates to the fact that it says love is not easily offended. Love, biblical love, is not easily offended. Why? Because God is a God of love. And so he's not easily offended or even outraged at the slightest offense. Does he tolerate it? No, God's intolerant to those kinds of things. But his reaction is abounding in goodness and truth. Why? Because he's long-suffering. And our God... Our God isn't like these people we know. Maybe that's ourselves. I think we can all be um, offended easily and even outraged, have a short fuse. But God isn't like us in this in that he's long-suffering. And because of this, his goodness and truth abounds towards us. And what that means is it means there's an abundance. There's a storeroom, if you will. An abundance of both goodness and truth stored up and waiting to be poured out into our lives, and because of this, God said in verse seven, Look, he says there he 's keeping mercy for thousands he's forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. in other words, no matter what kind of offense it may be when we when we when we uh, sin against God when we miss the mark when we you know deliberately rebel no matter what it is no matter how we may do it or what category it falls under no matter what kind of offense we might commit God's goodness and truth has it covered that's what it says here in light of this we need to understand that God shows his goodness towards us in his forgiving character God shows his goodness to us in his forgiving character. And I believe that this revelation of God's character to Moses puts away this idea that there is this bad or angry God of the Old Testament and that somehow there's a good or loving God of the New Testament because God's character of love of mercy, of grace, is present, obviously, from what God even says about himself here, as he proclaims his name to Moses, that this is all present in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. However, guys, in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament, God makes it clear that he will by no means clear the guilty. And I know that's complicated and I don't want to get into the complete doctrine or theology behind it. But in other words, in, as we look at it in context here and what we've been studying through and the other things that God proclaimed about himself as he comes to this last statement, in other words, guys, it's, it's, it's best to just look at it like this. If God's love and forgiveness are rejected, he'll punish. If you turn away from all of these things that he identifies as himself, you're going to be left with this. Is it still good? Absolutely, 100%. He will punish, and his punishment will have repercussions, he says, that is generational for any and every generation that chooses to hate him. Now, because because God had passed by Moses for Moses to see, and and then because he spoke these things about himself for Moses to hear. I don't know about you, but we should be, we should be reminded. Of, I'm reminded of, of Romans chapter 10, verse 17, which tells us that faith comes by hearing and receiving the word of God. What was God doing? He was speaking. Moses was listening, and faith at this moment was coming inside of Moses. And how do I know that? Because of Moses' reaction. It says first in verse 8 that Moses then bowed his head to the earth and worshipped, and then by faith he, in verse 9, exercised his faith, and he asked God to do what? God, if you're like this, I've spoken it, I've received it, faith is rising up inside of me, then God, pardon their iniquity and sin, and pardon pardon my sin and my iniquity, and take us as your inheritance. And in doing so, we see that Moses took God who had just declared that he forgave iniquity and transgression and sin. He took God at his word. Okay, if that's the kind of God that you say you are, then then do this. And that may be bold, but that's how God calls us to come to him in accordance to who he reveals himself to be. Taking him at his word, laying hold of the truth. That's what God did. For Moses, and that's what Moses did with God. And the fact that God in verse 10 was willing to renew the covenant, as you look there, is evidence that he forgave his people and gave them a new beginning. And in verse 10 it says, And he said, in response to what Moses had asked, in verse 10, Behold, I make a covenant before all your people, and I will do marvels such as not been done in all the earth, nor in any other nation. And all the people who are among you shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing, that I will do with you. The fact that the word marvels and awesome are in that one verse is pretty cool. Because God's saying saying a whole lot more than just, yeah, I'll renew my agreement with you. He's, He's taking it a whole nother level. I'm gonna renew my agreement with you, my covenant with you, because I've got great plans for you. Great plans for you, And the same is true with us, and with the renewal of this covenant, God also repeated, if you notice when we read earlier, I want to reread it again, but He repeated the essentials elements of the covenant, especially the laws about idolatry, right? In verses 12 through 17, which the children of Israel probably needed to be reminded of at this point. And it's obvious that God had done this because of Israel's most recent sin with the, the golden calf, the molten image that they had created out of gold. But also because, and God clarifies this as well, but because, not because of where they had been, so to speak, spiritually, but also because where they were, of where they were going geographically and the temptations that would be there because of the Canaanite people, the pagan people who were dwelling in the land of, of, of Canaan, the, these idolaters who worshipped all these false gods, that God was now going to bring them into this land with this people and he was going to give that land to them. And when Israel moved into their promised land, it's clear, and it was, when you study the history of the nation of Israel, it was clear that it would be a temptation for them to compromise with their enemies, these evil people, first by making agreements with them and then by joining their feasts and finally even by intermarrying with them and adopting their idolatrous and pagan ways. God warned them against it, spoke against it, and we know that they still stumbled to the temptation. So it was important from the very beginning that Israel, ultimately, that they would reject and completely destroy everything associated with idols and live, to to live separate from all the other inhabitants of Canaan. And so God warned them, look there in verse 11, to observe what he was commanding them to do on that day, because it was for their own good that they would obey him. And I love it when you go through the book of Leviticus and you read the details of the law that was given, and God would stop, he stops Every so often, he'll give he'll give some commands. It'll all be outlined, and then he'll go so that it may go well with you. And then he'll keep going on, and he'll like, oh, oh, by the way, so that it may go well with you. So that it may go well with you, over and over and over again. It's a repeated theme throughout the book of Leviticus. And that's what we see here in God calling the Hebrew people to observe what he was commanding them to do because ultimately it was for their own good that they obeyed him, considering God had promised to do what? God said, I'm going to do good. Observe my commands because I got good things planned for you. I'm going to do good. And God's desire was for them to enjoy the blessings of the covenant. Get this god 's desire was for them to enjoy the blessings of the covenant through their obedience through their obedience now oh boy okay in receiving this covenant we see we 're going to wrap it up with this um, the worship team wants to come back our justin come on back up buddy um, in, oh okay in re, okay in renewing this. Covenant, we got next week, unless Jesus comes back. I'm all right with that. If you're all right with that too, in renewing this covenant, we're gonna we're gonna see. We're gonna end with this. This we see the uncompromising. uh, We see this uncompromising and holy nature of God. Why? Because he didn't he didn't renegotiate the terms of the covenant simply because Israel had previously failed to keep them. Did he? You're like, okay, you blew the one with the molded image. And the golden calf, we'll leave that one out at this time. <laughs> no, he mentions it by name specifically. God's, God does not renegotiate the terms of the deal. Rather, God, and in that, what we see again is his compromising holy and righteous nature. And in that, God clearly restated what had been previously written. And this was because God, guys, God was going to do, he said, he was going to do marvels such as had not yet been done on all the Earth, and the, ex- the ex- extent of that was with, for and through the Hebrew people. God says, "I'm not compromising. This is the standard because we're going to do some good things, guys. I'm going to do some good things with you, for you and through you. That's why this is important. In other words, God's plan was to ultimately glorify himself. What do we know that to be? To reveal his goodness, to manifest himself to all the other nations of the earth through Israel. We talked about that in our men's group on Friday because that was the reason why they were the chosen people. It wasn't because they were like top-notch out of all the other people on the earth. God didn't look around and go, Wow, I could sure these guys are perfect. No, it was because God goes just like he does in the New Testament, he chooses the weak and the foolish things of the, of the earth so that he might be glorified, right? So people go, wow, look what God does with that dummy Sean. And, 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 and the same kind of idea, not that the Hebrew people are dummies, that's not what I'm saying, but um, it's this idea of God was being glorified through them to all the nations of the world, to show his glory through the great things that he did among them. And because of this promise to do this, God said this, awesome and marvelous things will be done with the Hebrew people. And because of that, there was this awesome and marvelous standard. If God's going to do awesome and marvelous things through us, does not there also come an awesome and marvelous standard? For sure. And we have that standard exemplified for us through Jesus Christ and the life that he lived. He who is the expressed image of God the Father. And so once again, the children of Israel had a choice, guys. Either, either the awesome and marvelous things would be a blessing, so, so that every other nation would know that God alone had blessed Israel, as was the case with Solomon, right? King Solomon. Or the awesome and marvelous things would be curses, not blessings, but a curse. This was their choice. A curse so horrible or a curse so horrible that every other nation would know that God had chastised his children, yet kept them as a nation. And such was the case with their exile. Is that not where we're at today? We go, man, look what God done with his people. He brought them back in the land. He loves them. And it's been a curse to them, but it's been a blessing to all the rest of the world. Why? Because we see God's awesome and marvelous things. Either way, God would glorify himself and he'd make himself known through Israel to all the other nations. In light of this, guys, I'm gonna end with this. We should be reminded of the fact that God wants to do awesome and marvelous things in and through and for us. And we come to know what that is, as we know him more. And so we pray, God, show us your glory. Proclaim your name. Let's pray. Father, show us your glory proclaim your name. God, we're excited for the awesome and marvelous things that you desire to do for, in, and with us, so that you might be glorified. So, Lord, may we seek you early in the morning. May we pursue you with all our heart, our soul, and our mind. God, we may we see and know that you're the best, and nothing else compares. In Jesus' name, I pray amen. I want to remind you guys at the end of the song there's going to be Justin will be up here, Autumn and then Jerry will be up here for anyone that would like to come forward in prayer and receive prayer this morning. Will you guys stand and pray with us or sing worship with us? we well, I've heard a thousand stories of what That I'm never alone. You're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are.